Thank you, fellas. Don't you guys appreciate a good jam session? I do. I appreciate musical talent because I have absolutely none whatsoever. So I can turn on the radio, which is cool. Thanks, guys. That was seriously, that was good. Um, it's me again. Two weeks in a row. You have to. Wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting a. Uh, two weeks in a row, you get to you get to hear my voice. But don't worry, Pastor Paul will be back next week here. Um, so last week we finished up a uh, a nine week um, series in the book of James, where we talked about this radical faith that God is calling us to uh, a faith where we don't just sit by idly, but we we kind of we dig in, and it's kind of tough uh, sometimes. But but this is the, the 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 walk that God has called us to that we that we saw in the book of James. And next week. Um, like I said, Pastor Paul will be back and we'll be starting a series uh, on the Holy Spirit. Um, so that leaves this week. And when Pastor Paul told me that I, I was preaching uh, last weekend, this week, he said, and in in this week you kind of have free reign. You get to uh, talk about whatever you want to. And, and that can be kind of scary. Um, I hope that he, never, he doesn't refuse to let me preach again after this week because that, be, that would be bad. But um, in... in in kind of our, our world of sermon prep and sermon calendars, um, we call this a one-off sermon or a one-off message because it's not in the middle of a series, uh, it's just this one week um, that has to do with this series. And, and to be honest, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to do these kind of one-off series because when you, when you do a, or a one-off sermon, because when you do a series, you kind of have the opportunity to kind of build up the context and build up the truths that you want to communicate. Um, but in this one-off message, it's just... This is the sermon. I have 25 minutes or so to communicate all the truths that that, uh, that I think God wants me to communicate. So it's a little bit difficult. So uh, so I'd ask that you bear with me. And if it's a total bust, then I will simply pray that each one of you has amnesia and you will never even remember that I preached this sermon. Um, hopefully that's not that's not the case. I hope it's not a bust. That would be bad. I want to talk to you this morning about a theological concept. Um, it's a theological concept that. Uh, that is fairly familiar, um, even for the newest of Christians, or even um, someone who's not even started on, on this, this walk with Christ. Uh, it's a theological concept that, that most are familiar with. Uh, I want to take a look this morning at the, uh, the omni-characteristics of God. Uh, we say that God is omnipresent, and that means that He's all-present, He's everywhere, um, God is omnipresent. And then we also say that God is omniscient, God is all-knowing, He knows Everything, And then finally we say that God is omnipotent. Um, he's all-powerful. He is a powerful God. He has all of the power. These three omni-characteristics of God. Um, these are very important and very basic theological concepts that we kind of, we, we learn about when we first start exploring this God. Um, we learn early on in Sunday school that our God is so big and he's so powerful and he knows everything and he's all powerful and he's everywhere. We learn these ideas early on in Sunday school. Um, and so I think sometimes because we say he's everywhere and he's, he's omnipresent, uh, we learn that he sees us all the time. And, and I, I kind of think that this leads us sometimes to this kind of Santa Claus type understanding 
of God, right? Where, where God sees you and he's watching you and he's kind of making this list like Santa Claus does about, you know, are you, are you being good? Are you being bad? And I think that sometimes this kind of leads us to this irrational fear of, of God seeing us. You know, watch what you're doing because God is watching you and he sees you. Um, but I think that these are some very elementary understandings of these omni-characteristics of God. And so what I want to do today or attempt to do today is to kind of take us from this theological concept or this idea and see if we can't bring it down um, to something that is a little bit more intimate, something where we can apply it to our lives and make it very practical and not this just this theological idea that's somewhere out there, but something that makes a difference in our hearts. So uh, I have to confess that the idea for this sermon actually came from, from one of my teenagers. And I know you're saying, Josh, you're the youth pastor. You're supposed to be teaching these theological truths to the teenagers and not vice versa. And I get that, but uh, I think it's pretty cool that sometimes my teenagers teach me something about God and they inspire me um, to, to learn something else about God. So um, this kind of was inspired by one of, one of my teenagers. If you remember, several months ago, we were in the middle of a sermon series here on Sunday mornings. To be honest with you, I don't remember what the ser- sermon series was called. Um, I know it's probably bad, but I don't remember. But on the back wall, if you'll remember, there was a big piece of long paper and it said, Jesus is. And we were all encouraged to take a post-it note and complete that sentence. Jesus is. What is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Put it on that sticky note and put it up on that wall. Um, And I began to, during the week, I would walk through here and I would take a look there and see what people wrote about Jesus is. Just as a way to kind of get this understanding of who do people say that Jesus is or what... What does Jesus mean to them? And so I would read them and I, and, I, and I would see what people put up there. And this one post-it note stuck out to me. It said, you know, Jesus is, and it said, Elroy, the God who sees me. Now, Elroy is E-L and then R-O-I. It's not L like E-L-R-O-Y, like the dog from the Jetsons, right? You guys remember the Jetsons? Anybody? The Jetsons, we thought certainly by the year 2015, we would have robotics like the Jetsons, right? And we'd all be flying around in space cars, and I like the Jetsons. I hope you did too. It was good. I wish the Jetsons was on Netflix. I would certainly watch. This isn't that kind of Elroy. This isn't the dog of the Jetsons. This is Elroy, E-L-R-O-I. Elroy, the God who sees me. And I saw this post-it note up on the backboard, and, and I, I kind of I felt compelled to, kind of, to, to get, get a better understanding of this idea that Jesus is... Elroy, because I've heard the names of Jesus of God, and I know the names of God, you know, El Shaddai, and, and I see this Elroy, and I, oh, you know what? I think I need to do a little more research on this to see how we go from this God who is omnipresent and this big God who's everywhere and this big idea, and we narrow it down to the God who sees me, intimately sees me. I want to I want to see how we how we uh, how we go about getting there. Uh, now, on a side note, the Knox family, the Knoxes aren't here. Um, I think they're traveling this week. Um, but the Knox family, another member of the Knox family, kind of taught me another perspective on this idea of omnipresence. So um, the, past, the past several, throughout the summer, um, the teens on Wednesday nights, we have been doing a thing called Sweet Summer Shenanigans, where we just kind of go and have fun, right? We just do things to have fun. This past Wednesday, we were actually playing Ultimate Frisbee. Any Anybody ever played Ultimate Frisbee? All right. You guys should play Ultimate. We should do that. Sunday morning, Ultimate Frisbee instead of service. That would be great. So we're playing Ultimate Frisbee. Um, 
I take the frisbee and I look up and I don't and I see a clear shot to one of my teammates and I throw it and then I look up and Jevin Knox is 27 feet in the air and he's snatching the frisbee out of my teammate's hand. Jevin was nowhere to be found when I threw the frisbee and all of a sudden he's there. Jevin was omnipresent on the ultimate frisbee field. Now, if you know Jevin, he's a freak athlete, and he's just one of those guys who just makes you mad because he's better than you at everything you'll ever try to do when it comes to athletics. I love Jevin. If he was here, I'd still say that, um, so you can tell him I said it. But Jevin kind of gave me this, <laughs> this new concept of omnipresent. He was all over the ultimate Frisbee field. But I, wanted to, I want to kind of get this understanding of what is Elroy? What does it mean that, that God sees us? And so what I found when I started researching this was that it, that it really takes place in Genesis chapter 16. And that's where we're going to be camping out this morning. And if you have your Bible and you would want to follow along, uh, we're, just going, we're going to read Genesis 16. It's not that long of a chapter, um, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, so like I said, feel free to follow along with me. I'm reading from the NIV uh, version if you are wondering why. It doesn't look like yours, and you have a different version, but that's okay. Genesis chapter 16 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with, do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. God, would you bless your word um, and uh, use it to penetrate our hearts and to change our lives. Amen. So like I said... I have this one short sermon to try to communicate everything from this chapter in Genesis. And, and I think that this is one of those passages of Scripture that really require us to look at the context building up to and surrounding this passage. And, and we also need to look at the cultural context in which this passage was taking place in order to get the best understanding of what God has to say for us 
through this chapter. And as another side note, I think that that's a pretty good uh, rule of thumb for any time we are looking at Scripture, right? We need to understand what's going on around it, and we need to understand what's going on in the culture in which it was written. So we, so we, we take a look um, to see what's going on leading up to this Genesis 16. Uh, where are we at in history? Not too long before this, uh, we had the story of the Tower of Babel. We're all familiar with the story of the, the Tower of Babel. And then immediately following the story of the Tower of Babel in Scripture, we see this kind of lineage that shows us where Abram came from, uh, how he came about. And we've, we see very early on in the story of Abram that God has big plans for Abram. God is going to use Abram. Abram is going to be a vital part of God's story intersecting with the human story. We, we see that God calls Abram to a land um, that, that he's unfamiliar with. And Abram, being the righteous man that he is, he, 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 he accepts God's call and he goes off um, and he takes his family and his possessions, um, including his nephew Lot, and they follow God. Now his caravan eventually makes their way to Egypt. Now Egypt, he knows his wife Sarai, and he knows that she's pretty good looking. And husbands, that's a good thing to know, right? That your wife is good looking? No? I hope you think your wife's good looking. <laughs> I think my wife is good looking. She was here first service and I still said that. So she, and I told her I'd say it again. So you can tell her that I said that, okay? My wife's good looking. <laughs> yeah, please. Anyway, Abram knew that his wife Sarai was pretty good looking. And so he got nervous. He was, they were going into this new land. They were going to Egypt. And he got nervous because he thought, my wife is good looking. And Pharaoh is going to try to take her from me. I'm probably going to get killed, and he's going to take Sarai to be his own wife. And so he comes up with this plan, and he says, All right, Sarai, you're going to pretend like you're my sister, and then I won't be killed off, and, and, and things will be better. So that's what they do, and they, say, they tell uh, Pharaoh that this is, this is my sister, and, and Pharaoh says, Okay, I'm going to take her in with me. And so he, he takes Sarai and has relations with her, but instead of killing off Abram because he thinks that Abram is, is, his, is her husband, um, he treats him well. He treats him like royalty. In fact, he passes off a bunch of riches to Abram uh, to take care of Abram because, so that Pharaoh can have a relationship with Sarai. He gives him, uh, he gives him lots of livestock. He gives them all kinds of servants um, to, to, to be, to work for Abram. But then the truth comes out because the wrath of God comes down on Pharaoh for having relationships with Sarah. And Pharaoh finds out the truth that, that Abram and Sarah are really husband and wife. And so and he's so scared of God and he's scared of Abram because of this wrath that has come down. He says, just get out of here. Take, take the servants I've given you. Take your livestock and just go because I don't want to face the wrath of God again. And this is important because this is, we see in this where this Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 came from. Hagar would have been one of the slave girls that was given to Abram in Egypt, and when, when Pharaoh kicked them out, uh, Hagar would have stayed with, with him along with his other servants. So this is where Hagar kind of comes from as she appears in chapter 16. Now later we see that there's a fallout between Lot and Abram, and they end up going their separate ways. Um, and here's, here's where things start to get really good. God makes this crazy promise to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and Abram's got one problem, and that's he's getting old and he has no offspring whatsoever. So we see this crazy, this crazy promise from God to produce all these offspring and these descendants that are as numerous 
as the stars. And in chapter 15, just before our passage today, we see this, this kind of dialogue between God and Abram. Where Abram is rightfully so a little bit skeptical about this promise and about this great reward that God has promised him. He says, I have no offspring. And you're telling me that my offspring are going to be as numerous as I have no offspring. In fact, all of these riches that I've gained, they're going to go to someone else because I have no offspring. And so they'll go to someone else's offspring within my household. My lineage is going to stop here. My, my heritage, my great name is going to stop here. And God says, no, your offspring, you will have a son and it will be your offspring that are as numerous as the stars. And I kind of find it interesting that, that when God tells Abram that, the scripture says that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then a mere two verses later, it's almost as if Abram is saying, God, I believe, but I'm going to need you to prove it to me. I'm going to need you to show me. So I just kind of find it interesting that, that Abram believed and was credited in righteousness. But then all of a sudden he says, you know what? I think I need some proof. And let's be honest, we feel that way sometimes too, right? Like we just, God, just give me something so I know I can believe this. And so Abram says, I need proof. Give me proof of this promise. And boy, does God come through when, on this request for proof of promise. And what is one of my, my favorite scenes in all of Scripture and is really worthy of a sermon in and of itself, but I don't have the time this morning. Um, we see God makes this beautiful covenant with Abram. This proof of the promise of multiple offspring. And he instructs Abram to set up a covenant ceremony. Um, a covenant ceremony that is typical for two humans when they're entering into a covenant relationship. Uh, where they would split, they would gather some animals and they would split the animals in half and they would set them up across from each other with a little walkway in between. And both parties of the covenant agreement would walk through the, the halves of the animals as if to say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may I become like these animals on the side. In other words, if I don't, if I don't live up to this covenant or if I don't keep my end of the deal, then you have every right to take my life. And so we see that Abram sets up this covenant ceremony in this beautiful picture where we see Abram fall asleep and God himself walks through the middle of these animals as if to say, Abram, I know that you're not going to be able to keep up all your end of the deal, but even if you can't, you better believe that I'm going to. God himself passes through and says, it's okay if you can't keep up your end of the deal. I'm God and I'm going to keep up my end of the deal. And we have this beautiful picture of a covenant between Abram and God. It's kind of this proof that when God said that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, he meant what he says. And this kind of sets up the scene for the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, so we're about 10 years removed from this great covenant picture that we have in Genesis 15. About 10 years later, where God says, it's real, you're going to have a son. Ten years later, and there's still no son to speak of. And we see that Abram and Sarai are getting a little bit impatient. To be honest, I kind of think that, that Abram and Sarai kind of get a bad rap when we, when we read Genesis 16. Like, oh, they're taking things into their own hand. But I don't think that we're that far removed from that, right? When, when God promises, don't we like it to be in our timing? But what if you follow God for any, any amount of time... It's not that tough to, to realize that God's timing is not our timing, 
right? Um, so we see Abram and Sarai, this promise from God, and, and they're getting a little bit impatient because God's timing is not their timing. And so they kind of take matters into their own hand. And um, we see that Sarai tells Abram, you know what? God has promised you this, but I obviously can't produce this offspring for you. So why don't you go ahead and take my servant Hagar, and remember, we remember from the, the backstory that Hagar was one of the Egyptian slave girls um, that Pharaoh gave to Abram. And, and at first, this seems really scandalous because uh, his wife is saying, Go sleep with another woman. In fact, marry this other woman so that you can have a kid. And that seems a little bit scandalous, but if we look at the culture, uh, this is not really that uncommon. In fact, the, the code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi, what? <laughs> I just lost my. Uh... My speaking ability there. Um, we see this written law, this written code, and it was that was in the code where, where it said if a spouse is not able to um, provide offspring, then the man is is um, allowed to, and in fact encouraged to sleep with one of his servants in order to um, to make sure that his lineage or his name is continued to pass down uh, through generations. So we see this is not really that uncommon. Of a thing, um, but we also still see that it is Abram and Sarai kind of taking God's promise into their own hands and making it into their timing rather than God's. So that's what Abram did. Uh, Sarai arranged for Hagar uh, to be with Abram, and right here things start to get a little bit ugly. As you can imagine, where this story would go, things start to get a little bit ugly. So first, you have Hagar, uh, who had no choice in this matter. She was simply a slave girl. Um, she had no choice. She had no option of saying no to this. This was she was property to Abram and Sarai. She had no choice. She had no option uh, to say no. And then we see in verse four things really start to heat up. When Hagar finds out that she's pregnant, she begins to despise Sarai. Now it's not clear in Scripture why this hatred comes about, but a, a quick look at the, kind of the culture, um, we can see that that this tension is predictable. You see, in this time, children were seen as kind of the ultimate fruit of the blessing of God. Like if you had a child, that means God had favor on you and you were more blessed. And if you were unable to, to reproduce, then you were somehow seen as less. And God did not bless you in the same way that he blessed those who could have offspring. And so we see this, um, this, this tension that's building because we have Hagar, who was once just a slave girl, and now all of a sudden, because she's pregnant with Abram's child, she's coming into this, this great family name of riches. And, and she's, she, her family, her offspring is now in line for Abram's riches. And, and beyond that, we see that Sarai is, is kind of, she's not able to have kids. And so in this culture, she was looked down upon. And so all of a sudden, this slave girl kind of has a more prominent position than Sarai. And so we can see how this starts to build some tension. And we talk about baby mama drama, <laughs> right? Like this was the first recorded instance of baby mama drama. We have Hagar, who's just a slave girl, all of a sudden rising to more prominence than Sarai. And, and, and Hagar kind of takes on this position of pride where she, she says, you know what, I'm, I'm more prominent than you are, Sarai, even though you're my, you're my slave master, you're my mistress, I'm more prominent than you are. And she takes on this, this pride and begins to despise Sarai. And Sarai and Abram, they sit down to have one of their talks. And if you're married, 
You know what these talks are, right? When you sit down and there's this disagreement and things are about to just... They, everything's about to be come out into the open and discuss this. And, and Abram and Sarai sit down for one of their talks. And, and this is becoming like soap opera-ish, right? Like this is daytime television worthy story here. Uh, Sarai says, you know what? I, I, gave you, I gave you Hagar and now she's pregnant and she's holding this over my head. And you need to do your job and you need to put Hagar in her place and remind her that she's just this slave girl. And then Abram Kind of pulls the, uh, well, she's your slave. You need to deal with her card. Um, he says, you take care of her. You're, you're her slave master. She's, she's your slave, so you take care of her. And Sarai says, okay, then I will. And she goes and she, she starts mistreating Hagar and starts making her life miserable. And so Hagar has no choice but to flee from the situation. And it's in this fleeing from this situation that we're finally set up for this great revelation of one of those beautiful characteristics of God. Because when Hagar was fleeing, God in the form of his angel intersects the path of Hagar. Scripture tells us that, that she's at a, at a roadside spring in the desert. Um, and it tells us that she's on the road to Shur. So, so she's headed back to Egypt, her homeland. Uh, her life as she, as she had known it for the past several years had become completely unraveled. Um, she was a victim, certainly. Uh, whether she was a victim of Abram and Sarai's sin or if she was simply a victim of culture is kind of debatable. But one thing is clear, she's a victim. But she was also an instigator. She took this position of pride when she became pregnant and held it over Sarai. But in her circumstances, on a road fleeing from all that she had known for the last several years, God intersected her path. Now there's some people who uh, are much smarter than me and did a lot more studying than me um, that would say that at this time Hagar had probably been traveling about uh, six to seven days on this road to Shur. And it was certainly a trail full of inhospitable folks. Um, she was an Egyptian slave girl and she was in inhospitable territory walking back to her homeland of Egypt for about a week, but she still had a long ways to go. No doubt, as she was walking and she took this little break at the roadside spring for a drink of water, um, no doubt she was suffering. Suffering from guilt, suffering from shame, suffering from the emotional pain of victimization, uh, suffering from this relentless road that she'd been traveling on. And this, in the midst of this suffering, is where we see God intersect her path. I want to read, reread verses 7 through 12 just, as, just to kind of see this picture of God intersecting Hagar's path. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So we see this, this intersection of God in the, in the path 
of Hagar. And he kind of, the angel says, where have you come from and where are you going? And as I'm reading this, my mind is going back to the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve are sitting and they're hiding from God and God calls out to say, where are you? As if God doesn't know where they are and as as if this angel doesn't know who Hagar is and where she's coming from and where she's going. But she says, but he, but he asks, where are you headed to? And Hagar tells him the story. And God, the angel of God does something interesting and tells Hagar to go back to Sarai. I kind of doubt that that was the call that Hagar was expecting at this point. The last thing she wanted to do was go back to Sarai. And I kind of find it interesting that, that sometimes when God intersects our lives, the response that we're called to isn't exactly what we have in mind. But we see that it's always for the better. Hagar didn't want to go back. That was the the source of all of her pain and her suffering. She didn't want to go back. But we also know that the road that she was traveling was next to impossible. The chances of her making it back to Egypt, her hometown, were slim. It's not the call that she wanted, but we know that it was for the better. And then God gives her this promise of multiple offspring, which, by the way, is not unlike the promise that God gave Abram. And God says, through his angel says, And you shall name your son Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. In the midst of all of her misery and all of her suffering, God heard her. God heard her cry. He intersected her path, uh, which was cluttered with just all kinds of craziness, and he heard her. The, the next promise that is given in Scripture here um, may be a little bit tough for us to understand the benefits or, or the value in this, because God says, your son will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, my wife Chelsea is pregnant, expecting our second child. And I have to tell you that if God were to tell us that our son would be a wild, if, if it's, I don't know if it's a son or not, but if our son was going to be a wild donkey of a man, I don't know how I'd take that. I don't think that I would take that as a positive thing. Jensen's pretty wild, but I don't know that I'd call him a wild donkey of a man. But how do we, what's, the, what's the significance of this promise? Well, think about it this way. Hagar was an Egyptian slave girl. She had no freedom. She was under the control, under the ownership of Abram and Sarai. And God says, you know what? Your son, Ishmael, he's not going to be under the rule of anyone else. He's going to be free. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to be free like this wild donkey. God heard the cry of Hagar. And then there's this most beautiful response from Hagar. So God had just given Hagar uh, a son and had given this son a name, Ishmael, to say, remember that God heard you in your misery and in your suffering and I love Hagar's response. She, respond, she responds by reciprocating that and giving God a name. She gives God the name El Roy, the God who sees me. Now the interpretation of this next phrase uh, has been debated on I know, how we can interpret it. If you, uh, if you have the NIV, it says, I have now seen the one who sees me. If you're reading out of the King James Version, it's a little more clunky and says, Have I also looked here? After him that seeth me. But one thing that is, that is in common uh, through, through the commentaries and the studying of this phrase is the sentiment of Hagar in her response to say, 
Can it be possible that even right here in the midst of my suffering and my lowly position, that God has seen me and I have seen him? Elroy, the God who sees me, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of misery, even in the midst of being victimized, and even in the midst of being caught up in our own sin, he's the God who intersects our lives and sees us exactly where we are, but also calls us out of our circumstances. So I ask you this morning, where are you? Where do you find yourself? Are you stuck so deep in your, in your suffering or misery and you're desperate for someone to see you? Elroy, God sees you. But it's not this like visual from a far off place where God is kind of looking through a telescope and he sees you. It's God sees you in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your misery. Right there with you, he meets you and he sees you and he hears you and he's calling you out of your suffering. Maybe you've been victimized in some way. Elroy, God sees you. He intersects your life and he sees and he hears your pain and he's calling you to move forward. Or maybe you find yourself stuck in sin. Elroy, God sees you. But we've got to be clear that it's not this kind of Santa Claus type seeing you where he's keeping this list of naughty or nice, right? He's watching you, but it's he sees you and he's right there in the midst of that sin with you and he's calling you out of your life of sin into the life that he has for you. Regardless of where you're at, God sees you and God hears you. Maybe you're not really finding yourself in any of those places and and maybe you've already grasped this truth that God sees me and God hears me. But this call is not just to accept that we're seen or accept that we're heard, but it's a call to carry that out in our own lives. To see others, to hear others. If God is a God who sees and hears us, then we're called to be people who see and hear others. We see and hear other people in their circumstances of suffering, in their circumstances of misery, in their circumstances of victimization and even in sin, but we don't see and hear other people from this far off viewpoint. We see them right there with them through this lens of love and compassion, just like Elroy does for us. So this morning, we're going to take time to respond. Uh, I would invite you to stand with me. Amy, if you'll come and uh, play, some, play some music. We've talked about this God who sees us and hears us, and he's calling us to respond in some way. And my teens know that, that I'm really big on, on the response because, well, in fact, we named our youth ministry Respond because God is constantly speaking his word in our lives and Everything that we do is a response to that word that's spoken to us. And so we've seen the word of God shows us this God who hears us and this God who sees us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our victimization, in the midst of our sin. And whatever it is, he sees us and he hears us. And what's our response to that?
I don't know what that response is for you, but I'm going to leave space here this morning uh, to respond. Maybe it is that you're just waiting for someone to hear you and to see you. God sees you. Elroy, God sees you and he hears you. So Amy's going to play. I'm going to wait a few minutes. Um, Maybe you would like to spend some time being seen and being heard by God at the altar. And if that's what you want to do, then feel free to do that. If you want to be seen and heard from the God who sees us and hears us in your seats, then feel free to do that. Um, But I'm going to just wait just a few minutes, um, and I would invite you to respond in whatever way you feel appropriate. God, we thank you for the truth that we find in the story of Hagar, this Egyptian slave girl who's in the midst of suffering and chaos and even sin, and you see her and you hear her. God, we thank you for that truth that you also see and hear us. God, whatever it is that is going on in our life, um, we know that you are intimate and you see us and you're right there waiting for us to just take your lead as you lead us out of it. God, i got to be honest, I don't know that I still fully understand this idea of the God who created the universe, um, who's so big and so powerful, also being so intimate with me and seeing me and hearing me and caring about each and every care and desire in my life. I don't know that I can fully grasp that. But God, by faith I accept it. As we go, may we also be people who see and hear other people in the midst of their suffering and pain and sin. May we be the people who see them and who hear them through the lens of love and compassion. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. God bless, guys. You're dismissed.